We've been about this work, diversity, equity, inclusion, belonging, shared through the voices of a white woman and a black man. We bring lived experiences. We have pursued DNI progress for most of our professional lives. We use Crazy in the King to cover news, tips from colleagues, and host incredible guests. Listeners, count on Julie and I to transparently drive the conversation. We thank you for rocking with us. Check it. Julie, kick off the show. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Crazy in the King. Fresh off of a nice big lobster, full salad. Like I'm trying to get my little vegetables in, have me a little Izzy, second one. Like I'm ready to record. Now, here's the secret. People are hearing me talk about this meal, but they have no idea what time of day it is that you and I are recording. How are you, my friend? Uh, I am freaking awesome. Just got home from Arizona, literally. Yes. Uh, yes. Just flew in and recorded a fireside with ISM CEO um, Steve Lucas. And oh, you said with the big folks. With the big folks, and and, and, actually, the, and, and what we call what we call high cotton. You said yeah. in the big sit with the big. <laughs> I don't know that that term, but but I did say to him like. 10 years ago, I never could have imagined that a CEO of a publicly traded big, big TA tech company would sit and talk about disability with me as part of the opening. So kudos to Isom's. Great to meet Steve. He was fantastic. And uh, that will be out live next month. I love that. And this is where I'm going to drop a note in for our producer to see if he can put some sound effect, some sound effect clapping right around this particular mark, because that's a big deal. Like you being able to have this conversation. Let's just stay there for a moment. Why was it not on your radar? You come from the community. You've been in the space. Why do you or why did you not think that you'd be having a conversation with an executive at that level publicly? Why not? Why? Why? Well, I mean, I think it, a big part of it is is that we've been just fighting, fighting, fighting to even have a voice in the conversation when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion and belonging um, to get this high level of a, a commitment and a conversation has been almost a decade in the making. Um, and it, no, no reflection on myself. I could talk to anybody, right? That That's no big thing. Um, but for for our community to get that recognition and the work that my team is doing at Disability Solutions is I, it was a pretty pretty great day for for this lady. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. Um, when will it come out, and is it going to be on the iSims website or someplace else? So it'll actually be part of iSims Impact, which is their annual conference. Um, it's going to be virtual this year. That's why I went out to record. Um, so you guys can learn more about that at iSims.com. But uh, I was thrilled to see the team. Happy to see Susan Vitali, um, their CMO over there, and, and meet some of the other great women that are driving the machine at ISIMS. Yeah. Um, so that's a good story. We got some folks that um, they kind of fell on the bad side of the apple. It, it, there's actually two of them. Uh, Activision is one. Uh, they had to pay some money for a discrimination lawsuit. Theirs wasn't as much. I believe theirs was sub twenty. Uh, million dollars. But this one is a lot. Yeah. Tesla is, uh, they dropping a couple of bags. Yeah. So $130 million, a U.S. federal One, jury. 137. Ordered, oh, 
137. That's seven. Oh, oh wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, um, wait a minute. Uh, nope, nope. You're right. You're right. You're right. 130 million. <laughs> I typed 137. I stand corrected. Sorry. Not a worry. I think we'll make it through. Um, to a former black employee who was an elevator operator in the company's factory in Fremont. I, the fact that we have elevator operators still floored me when I read this story. But, um, you know, Tesla said, hey, we don't think that we are quite as bad as this story makes us out to look like, but we still kind of suck. So we're going to pay the fine. <laughs> yeah, let me tell you what was funny, because you you actually caught one of the things that I thought was funny, that we have an elevator operator in an organization in 2021. Now, I assumed that when they used that descriptor, Julie, that they actually were talking about or referencing the person that maintains, that provides maintenance to the elevator. But mm -hmm. that aside, that aside, you know that there was a Powerball drawing this week. So somebody yes. out in California as well won a whole lot of money, but I guarantee you, this former employee, Mr. Owen Diaz, I don't know their pronouns, but Owen Diaz is probably quite happy at this point. But then the third thing that I say about this is, you know, I, I have to ask the question, and it is really rhetorical. Like, are you happy receiving $130 million having to have been called out of your name, harassed? and some of the other, whatever it took for him to get to this point. Are you truly happy or are you, I don't know. I don't even know how to really form the question. I, I think the answer for me is that I would be happy, but again, that's outside looking in. Does, does that make sense? It does. And I don't know why you ever ask a rhetorical question to me because that's never going to work. Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. But I, I mean, yeah, I think I'm with you. It's like $130 million sounds pretty fucking good to me. Um, but going through probably years and years of abuse and litigation doesn't make up for or the money doesn't make up for that. Right. The just common humanity. So I, I hope he has a good life and he spends that money well. And uh, and passes some on to his people. You know what I would do with some of that money? Uh, some of that money would absolutely be spent on uh, getting some of that stock. Uh, I would absolutely invest in Tesla, try to become like a major shareholder. I mean, at one hundred thirty <laughs> million so dollars, fun. come on! At one hundred and thirty million dollars, you can buy a significant share of stock. Now, I'm not talking about an activist style takeover, but you can buy enough where you are sitting in the room and you are able to wield your power and make some decisions. If I was Owen Diaz, I'd absolutely invest and make sure my presence was felt for a very long time to come. Oh, I thought you were going to say that you're going to buy some Crazy in the King t-shirts or some swag or something like that. But yeah, Tesla stock, also a good option. So another good story this week. Um, so Lee Lamas uh, walked the Fashion Week runway in Milan mm -hmm. wearing her insulin pump this week. 
and I, I saw that the the picture. She's got like a jacket on, a little hot swimsuit thing going, and her insulin pump is let's say in her left quad or left thigh, and um, she is the the young model is a daughter of Kate. Moss, the the like kind of original supermodel, and she's a type one diabetic. And I just thought, okay, that's a pretty big deal. Hold on, I am now on Google because you said something. Now this is not, you know, how you say diverse talent, and I'm always correcting you. <laughs> this is not one of those types of Googles. This okay. Google right here is original supermodel. I want to oh. see what name comes up as a matter. <laughs> <laughs> I do. I, I, no, let me tell you. I want to see who comes up uh, when I type in the phrase original supermodel. I'm, I'm just scrolling. I think I'm going to have to revise because I no, think no, I know but who guess I should what? have said. <laughs> but, no, but guess who came up? Now, on my side, according to my geo targets and all of that, I got a whole bunch of stuff. I'm not going to talk about the images that I'm looking at, but the first name that I see is Marilyn Monroe. Oh, okay. The first image that I see is, I know Naomi Campbell's image, and then let me click on this woman right here. I don't know who this, oh, is an image of a person by the name of Gia Karangi. I don't know okay. who she is. Me neither. Gia Karangi. So I was just curious when you said that, um, yeah, like who really is the first supermodel? I know that yeah. that's not scientific, but nonetheless, Lila, is it Lila or Lila? Uh, I think it's Lila, but I don't Lila? know that okay. for a fact. All right. Lila, L-I-L-A Moss, daughter of Kate Moss. She walked the runway. Keep going. I'm sorry. Yeah. A lot of people on Twitter are like, why, why does this matter, right? There are so many type 1 diabetics in the world. Like, it's pretty freaking normal. And I caught a tweet by Diana D. Light, uh, D-E-E Light. Um, and she she said it pretty clearly to a lot of the people responding to why is this a story? And it, she said, it's about normalizing it. A friend's daughter almost died when she was a teenager because she was in denial of her type 1 diabetes. She didn't want to be different from her friends. She sabotaged, sabotaged her treatments and landed herself in the hospital. That's why these things are important. And I think that's what I, I want our listeners to uh, to call out. Yeah. So say it in a different way. You know, in a different way, I think about a young lady who shared her testimony with me and her testimony is, you know, how she's traversed through life, some of the ups and the downs and things that she's overcome. She shared how being pregnant as a teen for her, it was embarrassing. She felt stigmatized. She felt like she had let so many people down, plus others. Like it was, it was not normal. It wasn't sanctioned. It wasn't supported, so to speak, for her to be a teen mother in in high school. And what you're saying here is that you know, through through Diana Delight's tweet, it really is about people with that type one diabetes to be able to say, listen. She's out being a supermodel. Like, that's incredible. You can go out and be uh, a BMX bike rider, or you can play for the WNBA, or you can, you know, uh, be in the military. If there's so many things that you can do, let's try not to allow whatever adjustments, edits need to be made so that you can live a normal life. Don't, don't suppress that. That's really what she's saying, and I love it. 
yeah, she's she's spot on, and I think she hit the point uh, home to a few people who needed to hear it. Yeah, and I mean, you know, and Julie, when we think about it, there's so many things that we need to normalize. Like, we need to make sure. Uh, I, I think about being on a session with one of my clients, and you know how um, they were talking. This was over in APAC, and we were talking about people with disabilities and how one woman on the uh the 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 conversation she talked about how she was she was just embarrassed to bring her autistic child out of the home didn't take them on field trips didn't want to take them to the grocery store hesitant to take them to a park just sheltered them and and not because not because I think I said she was embarrassed not because she was embarrassed, but because she was trying to protect them, didn't want children to stare at them, didn't want people to look sideways at them, didn't want just whatever motherly love, protection. And so you are absolutely right. We have to do a far better job of normalizing so much. Now, I'm sure you and I could agree that there's some things that we don't need to normalize, correct? Uh, Assumedly, yes, there probably are some. Yeah, I, when we get I, to them, did, we'll we'll figure that out. <laughs> well, did, did did you you did you miss the tweet from uh, Ted Cruz last week? Um, he 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 said you know um, he 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 listed all of these ball players, basketball players, NBA oh. players. Yeah, so he said you know basically I'm paraphrasing. Don't tell me what to put in my body. You know it's it's my body, my right. Yeah, yeah. Ted all- Cruz. Yeah, he that guy is a living. But but you just passed and, yeah. and are supportive and had nothing to say with the Texas abortion laws yeah. for women in their bodies. But from a, a a vaccine standpoint, don't anyway. Yeah, there's a lot of things that we don't need to normalize as well. So on that note, let's hear from a very normal and very wonderful sponsor right now. Absolutely. Welcome, change agents, to your go-to place for stories that ignite your spirit, fuel your purpose, and connect us all. We believe in the incredible power of the human spirit, its boundless resilience, and the inspiration it brings to our lives. On the Driving Change podcast, we'll journey together through the extraordinary yet very relatable experiences of some of the most amazing people on earth. Our mission? That through these stories, we might just spark change within you and awaken a newfound motivation to harness your unique gifts to make a real difference in the world. So get ready to be inspired and join us on this incredible adventure. You can find the Driving Change Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you love listening to your favorite podcasts. So you know I'm excited about this one right here, Julie, because we we talked about uh, Bruce's Beach a couple of months back, and I got to be honest with you, I saw the story, didn't think to include it, and that's an error on my part. But I got to tell you, when I when I originally saw the story a couple of months ago, I really didn't have a high degree of hope that that the end result would be as we are about to describe right now. Yeah. So this is a a pretty new story for me. So let, let's kind of lay the, uh, the backdrop. So Manhattan beach is a huge community in 
Southern California. It's actually in LA County. Um, city is 99% white. And in 1912, a couple, Willa and Charles Bruce, purchased the first of what would be two lots on Manhattan Beach and opened up um, for black patrons to spend their weekends, right? They had a lodge or like a hotel. They had a dance hall. They had an eatery. And the area became known as Bruce's Beach. And they purchased those two lots of land, oceanfront property in L.A. County, for $1,225 in 1912. And so as white folks do, they really didn't like when the Willa and Charles were having great success. They didn't like that they were having all of these black patrons in to spend their weekends off of work and, and celebrating their family time. So they sent in the KKK who attempted to harass the Bruce family into giving up their land. They set fires. They burned buildings down. They did what they do. And the Bruce's refused. And so being that violence didn't work, the city of Manhattan Beach, the, the actual city government, came in in 1924 and they said, you know what, we're going to just go ahead and take this land from you because we need it for eminent domain. This beautiful land that you've been using for black families to vacation needs to be a park. And at the same time, we're going to tell you, the Bruce family, that you may not purchase any new land in Manhattan Beach City. Yeah, let me jump in real quick. And, let, and, and, and just for those that are listening, you, you might be familiar with Rosewood. You might be familiar with Greenwood. You might be familiar with um, Black Wall Street in Oklahoma. There were so many places like this. Like, and I can't call it out because I don't have it uh, at the top of my memory. But even in Central Park in New York City, there were areas of Central Park that were predominantly black. And those areas were ravaged by white citizens at the time. and uh, eventually, you know, moved away from black control. And, and so it wasn't uncommon, even out in California. Here we are thinking, let's get away from the South. Let's move as far West as we possibly can. You had slaves. The, the reason why black folks began to migrate West is because basically they were saying to themselves, if we can get away from slavery, and masters, we can set up new lives and start over. We can go pitch a tent and whatever we pitch our tent on, however far we could throw a rock, this would, this would be ours. And so that's why you have this migration of black individuals moving out west. And out in California, this type of hostility was not something that was new. This hostility was happening in Santa Monica Beach. It was happening in Inkwell. It was happening in Huntington Beach. It was happening all over the place. Like the KKK made their way from the South out West as well. It's just amazing how racism has no boundary. Go ahead, Jay. Yeah. And so let's fast forward to today, right? The Bruce family was not able to purchase land. Their property was taken from them. Their wealth was taken from them. And honestly, after 1924, the, the, 
property actually set vacant until the 1940s, late 1940s. Eventually, it was transferred in ownership to L.A. County. And L.A. County supervisor Janice Hahn said, okay, we now have control of this property. I now sit in this seat of power. We're going to figure out how do we get this plot of land back to the descendants of Willa and Charles Bruce. And this is probably around 2006. Yeah, uh, like, yes. This is a long time ago. So here we are. Jay is taking you through this journey of what happened starting back in 1912. Here we are now at roughly 2006. Go ahead and pick up the story. But we just I just want you all when 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 people say to you, well, well when are you all going to get over racism? Or or when are you going to get over that victim attitude? When are you going to get over every everybody's out to get you in? I just want you to understand that so much of the progress that we are experiencing today, 20, 30, 50, 100 years of work behind the scenes. I'm sorry. Yes. Well, and that's a great point because people don't hear about it till it's in the newspaper. So fast forward to today. Um, and, and this week, uh, California Governor Gavin Newsom signed into law Senate Bill 796, mm. and it was approved unanimously by the California legislature for the land in the city of Manhattan Beach, and I'm quoting, which was wrongfully taken from Willa and Charles Bruce, should be returned to their living descendants. The legislation declares, and it is in the public interest of the state of California and the county of Los Angeles and the city of Manhattan Beach and the people of the state of California to do so. That, that to me, feels like progress. Um, because not only is this family going to, to have that recognition, kind of like what we talked about with the Harvard and the photos a few weeks ago, but this land, just take a guess at how much this land is worth now. 200 million. Nope. Well, now you're messing it up. 75 million. Okay. $75 million. (laughs) I'm kidding about messing it up. But $75 million, that is generational wealth, right? That's like Rockefeller wealth. That's Kennedy wealth. That's Bush wealth is going to come back to, and and we won't, we won't applaud it till it's done, but is in process to start to return this money to the great, great grandson now of Charles and Willa Bruce. Maybe not Rockefeller, maybe not Kennedy, maybe not uh, Bush, but it is generational wealth. It's a lot and of money. That, that that you cannot deny. And we've talked about money uh, at the beginning of the show. I'm looking at a beautiful image of the, the, the descendants of Charles and Willa Bruce. It's a 2018 photo when they did a family reunion at the beach. And one of the family members said it was, quote, it was very spiritual for us to come together as a family. Um. This person is a Pocaset Wapanog chief and tribal elder from his father's side. He went on to say, I declared the land sacred that day 
and promised that I would do everything I could in the world to get justice for our family. This was back in 2018, while they are just common family holding a family reunion on land that is theirs, that is not under their control. It is a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story. And I'm so glad like we pulled it to share this week with individuals, you know, that listen to Crazy and the King. Yeah. And I think for me, just, you know, you and I actually have never talked about reparations. That's something that in three years of doing the show, I don't think we've maybe mentioned one time. Um, and I think as a white person, it's really hard for me to understand what the loss of generational wealth looks like, especially because I come from a family that doesn't have generational wealth, right? I, I come from common stock. And so when I read this story, it just hit me in a way that I think for the first time helped me to realistically understand what was taken from people and to put that not just with faces, but with a dollar that says, wow, like this is what was stolen. It wasn't a $1,200 piece of land, right? It was generations and generations of Bruce's being able to build on that wealth, right? 75 million. It, and I think to your point is, is just like the bare minimum. That's just what the land is worth. What could they have built with all of that money, right? That could have been $200 million. It could have been $300 million. It could have been any amount of money. And we'll never know because the city of Manhattan Beach decided to take that land under false pretenses. I'm yeah, happy. And let, and, let, and let me say something, Jay. I didn't yeah. mean to cut you off. No, please. But I'm I'm I've, I'm forgetting how you started it. Did you mention in the beginning of the story that the Bruce's had a hotel here? Yes. Okay, got it. I missed that part. I'm sorry. So there was a story that I read. You know, when I read this a couple of months ago, and it's probably now uh, longer than two months ago. It's probably closer to six or seven months ago. But when I read it in that particular story, I couldn't find it um, prior to our taping, but they talked about the value of that hotel right now, just the hotel alone, just the building alone, had the building been maintained and very similar to that of other hotels in the area, the value of that alone would have been close to a hundred, $200 million, if not a little bit more. Then we talk about the land. We talk yeah. about all of the other ancillary businesses that the Bruce family could have started and or business that they could have brought to the area and benefited from. Like it is a very big and complex, you know, scenario. And you're right. We've never talked about reparations. Quite frankly, I don't think we've ever said the word before today. I don't, I don't think, think we've so. ever said the word. And, you know, it, it probably could be an interesting conversation. Admittedly, though, it's not one that I've given a lot of thought to. And, and that's interesting. So that may be a conversation that we have to have perhaps towards um, either the end of the year when it gets a little lighter. Um, but yeah, so yeah. beautiful so, story, though. I am yep. glad you found it. And let's just wrap it up with a quick word from California Governor Newsom. And then uh, you take us into our final story of the day. Appreciate that. So here at Bruce's Beach in Manhattan Beach, right on the California coast, and had the privilege today to sign legislation that will allow the transfer of this property back to a family 
who had this property taken away over a century ago. The Bruce family was an entrepreneurial family standing right here uh, that had built a business uh, and owned this land, only to see it taken away under the pretext of eminent domain because of one reason, the color of their skin. And so I had the opportunity today to sign legislations with members of the community, including the great-great-grandson and other activists and members uh, of the community that were principal in their efforts and declaration that we needed to right that wrong and we needed to move forward in the present and in the future. Awesome. Well, look, this week, uh, I want to revisit a conversation that you and I have had on the show roughly five or six times in the three years that we, we've been recording together. Uh, and this topic happens to deal with transgender participation in sports. There has been plenty of conversation, like plenty of conversation around transgender athletes competing from the high school level, collegiate level, all the way up to the Olympics. and. We've had an opinion. You've had an opinion. I've had an opinion. We continue to have an opinion and we'll continue to have an opinion. Uh, but last week, the Sports Council Equality Group also had an opinion and they shared it. And I got to tell you, opposition to the report, it came swift. Like I started seeing all of these tweets flying last week and I'm like, well, first of all, who's this sports equality group and why are people up in arms? And so, of course, I did a little bit of reading. And one of the uh, negative comments came from somebody by the name of Robbie DeSantos. He's with the Stonewall uh, organization. And he said, quote, the beauty of sport is that it is for everyone and that this guidance moves us away from that core principle by creating confusing, unnecessary distinctions for sporting bodies to navigate. So let's talk about it a little bit more. I want you to remind the audience and perhaps reveal to the audience because we may have some new listeners, maybe even edit for the audience because you may have changed your position around transgender athletes and in sport. Now you can answer it, transgender men, transgender women. I'm gonna be focused on transgender women. How do you feel? Yeah, my my opinion has not changed. My my thought process has not changed. And if you've listened to us before, you know that I feel very strongly that what we need to be focusing on is normalization and creating space, especially for young young athletes and um, and very vulnerable young people who should have access to sports and are being vilified and abused by many of the the state legislatures in this country and and uh, probably around the world. And so to me it's it's just a game. It's sports. It, yes, I love competition. Yes, I love to watch it, but at the end of the day if us including people um er, including transgender people in sports saves someone's life, saves a teenager's life, changes an adult's mind about a, a transgender person and what they can be. That's where I'm at. Okay. So the group, um, the uh, UK Sports Council and the other individuals that participated in this report, they said that um, it's difficult to balance inclusion with fairness and safety. Would you agree with that? Yes, I think that's okay. fair. 
I think this is okay. not an easy discussion. Got it. So I, while I appreciate the, what's the word that I'm looking for? I appreciate the zest of Robbie DeSanto's opposition. I even appreciate UJ and it's just sport. Like let, let folks play, let, let them play. I just come down on the side of, um, and I think it was Laurel Hardy that participated in the Olympics this year. I just really come down on the side of if, if I'm a man at birth and I trans over to being a woman and I'm bringing who I am at 5'11", 225, 230 to whatever sport I'm playing, physical, team related, individual, if I bring me to that sport, I have to think inherently I have an advantage over a significant portion of the women that are out there competing. Not all of them, because I'm not in any way suggesting that there are not strong women that could compete against me, run as fast as I ain't, run, hit as hard as I might hit, jump as high as I might jump, throw as far as I might be able to throw. But inherently, I'm not walking around thinking that a good large portion of women are stronger and more physically capable than I am. And I just feel like I have an unfair advantage. So let me kind of throw it to you a different way. Okay. Because fundamentally, I don't disagree. I think that there are competitive advantages that we have to figure out and we have to to have an answer to. And I don't have that answer. Um, I just know I err on the side of what what's going to take care of a, a, a transgender youth. But let me say it this way. So we. Oh, real quick before you do that. Yes. So I do like you've done it twice, but but this time I want to make sure that I inoculate it for a moment for our listeners. You've said it twice. Your focus is protecting the youth, especially those that are vulnerable to some of the ill, some of that um, negative energy that may surround their participation. And you're not really, you you see the youth as different than, let's say, the Olympics. So go ahead. I, I do appreciate you really, really zoning in on where your focus is. Yeah. So, so the other thing I actually read this, I can't, can't take total credit for it, but it goes back to kind of our Texas story a few weeks ago, right? There aren't any measures in male sports about the amount of testosterone that you're bringing, right? But for female athletes like Castor Semenya, like transgender women, there are testosterone tests, right? And so to me, this is also another way of compelling and controlling women's bodies because the standard of competition for a man is your man, you go compete. There, there are no conversations about transgender men who are competing in athletics. There are no testosterone tests to make sure their testosterone is high enough to compete against men. We've never had that conversation, but we will continue to have conversation that focuses on controlling women's bodies. And making sure that their bodies, our bodies fit in this certain line. And I think that this is another way of doing that. 
And so until men have to have the same standard of estrogen or testosterone or whatever the fuck it is, I don't think that anybody should be regulating, right, that level of hormone in female athletes. And I think that includes transgender athletes. So it was actually um, the, let's see, developed by Sport England, which included Sport Scotland, Sport Northern Ireland, Sport Wales, and UK Sport, which went on an 18-month um, consultation and review of existing research and perhaps even some new research. Uh, the review had been, been described by those that participated uh, in charge of the various sports councils as, quote, challenging and emotive piece of work. And so I got to tell you, Julie, I appreciated that e uh, empathetic description of what they went through. It wasn't a sterile explanation. It wasn't a sterile discovery of data. It wasn't a sterile questionnaire. These folks said it was emotive. It was emotional. And, and I don't know who exactly they talked to. I know that they took respondents from 54 different types of sports, 175 plus organizations. And again, they said that this was emotive work and it was over 18 months. And so what I will say is that I appreciate what, what, what appears to be a thorough, thoughtful discovery around here's where we are, are landing and where they landed is that number one, the report suggests that we need to prioritize trans inclusion. That's an absolute plus. We should prioritize trans inclusion. I'm with that 1000%. They said, number two, we should consider, well, they didn't use the word consider, but they said creating new sport formats with fairness and safety in mind. And that's where I come in. I struggle with that position when I think about something like, let's say the army you know, women wanting, women, not trans women, women wanting to be on the front line of the army. I remember years before I got steep in the DNI work, that whole argument was coming up. We don't want women on the front line. And I struggled because I was of the opinion, like, I don't want to see a woman standing on the front line, taking a bullet for the United States of America. I literally, that was full stop. That's what it was for me. Not that I wanted them to be barefoot and in the kitchen cooking for the men. That wasn't it. But I said to myself, why would I want my sister, my cousins, why would I have wanted my grandmother to be slugging through mud with an M16 rifle, standing up, taking a bullet? I don't want that. So it was a real hard transition, and it is a hard transition. I was on Clubhouse yesterday with Michael Heller, and he asked me, what did I do this weekend? I went down and helped my mom. Well, myself, my brother, and my nephew, we redid uh, portions of my mother's deck. And he said, did your mom help? I said, as long as I'm around, my mom is never lifting a, ha a hammer. Not that she can't. But I ain't having my mom lift a hammer. I'm not having my mom hop on a, a riding lawnmower to cut the, the acre of, of lawn that she, I'm not doing that. If she wants to, all right, knock yourself out. Mm -hmm. 
So I'm just, I'm not a male chauvinist in any particular way, but I'm going to always protect the queen. So let me get back to my point. I'm sorry. I went off on a little try. Uh, number three, uh, I'm sorry. Let me, for those of you who lost me, number one, prioritizing trans inclusion. Number two, creating new sport formats, fairness and safety in mind. And the third point from the report, which I appreciate, having two female categories, one for those assigned female at birth and another open category that includes trans women. That one actually might be a little sticky, but those are the three suggestions. Yes. And you know that there's no, no category for trans men. Yeah, they didn't really talk about that. Exactly. And that and that's the misogyny in it. That that's that's the key that just keeps coming back to me is it is another way to control women. So I think that we can both agree as we wrap up this segment, one, that this will probably not be our last conversation about it. No. And two, that this is not fucking easy, right? When we really get down to the work of inclusion and equity and access. The answers are not always simple and right in front of our face. And I appreciate that work is being done to help us further this conversation. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So listen, uh, you will be surprised or happy to know. I'll tell you offline. I did reach out to uh, an incredible HR tech partner and said, why don't you consider like sponsoring our Her Voice segment? So we'll wait to see what happens. Hopefully we'll get some feedback from. Uh, from them before our next show. But our first woman this will, week that we want to amplify, again, her voice for us, uh, it happens to be women that are making some serious moves. And so uh, I want to highlight Wendy Suzuki for this power drop uh, around mindset and positive reinforcement. Why don't you all have a listen? And there's a study, I don't know if you've heard of it, mm -hmm. where they take a bunch of women yeah. and before they go into a math test, uh -huh. they basically remind them, hey, you're a woman. Mm -hmm. And because typically men are supposed to, supposed to yes. quite, quite be better at math than women, yeah. women actually end up doing worse when they're reminded that they're women. Yeah. Now, I've also heard that that same test, they took these women and the women that were Asian, they mm -hmm. went up to them like, you're Asian. Mm -hmm. And then they go into the math test and they crush it. Yeah. So like the power of cognitive reminders yeah, yeah. is just insane. It and going insane. to what you were saying about superpowers, yeah. it's super impressive that this can be a superpower or a kryptonite, right. depending on how you choose to exactly, use it. Exactly, exactly. So that is really the power of mindset. So what do you believe about yourself? And if you believe that women are bad at math and they can't do engineering, then you will perform worse on math and engineering tests. But if your mom and your family have always told you, you have an amazing brain, you can excel at whatever you learn because your brain is able to learn whatever you want. You wanna do well on tests, study. Your brain will suck mm. that in. You know, I, I wanna give, there's a gift that I could give everyone. It is the gift of the knowledge that the human brain is the most powerful structure known to humankind. And it was designed to learn. You can train your brain to learn anything. If you remember that, that is the best mindset that you can go into life with. 
cool. So that right there, um, again, was Wendy Suzuki. Uh, it was an excerpt from a conversation between Lis- Lisa Billyu, uh and Wendy on IG. And I think it's so incredibly important that we are really thinking about how is it that we are seeding and encouraging the minds of those who think that they might not be able to very much so like uh, the Lila Moss story at the top. How is it that we are encouraging and normalizing something different other than you can't? Um, who's our next one? So, this one I love. I know you love. I have. You knew I saved it for on you. <laughs> I know. I saved it for you on purpose. Like I took yeah. the first one on purpose. Go ahead. It, it was almost our whole show today. So former yeah. Facebook data scientist Francis Hogan um, yeah. has come forward and actually has now testified before a subcommittee of Congress um, yeah. and has provided a pretty damning set of documents that underpin recent reports about the harmful nature of not just Facebook, but the Facebook family of of apps, Instagram, WhatsApp, um, Facebook. I think there's another one and um, that they have repeatedly taken profit over safety and Frances Hogan is a young woman and uh, this is a dangerous decision for her and a scary, scary time, but she's bringing out information that we need to have conversations about how we regulate social media and, and how we regulate again, those, those algorithms that are driving so much of the disinformation and harm because they're so unfettered. So kudos to Francis. And then last but not least, Lauren Williams is co-founder and CEO of Capital B, along with Akoto Ofori Atta. I love that name, Akoto Ofori Atta. She's also co-founder and chief audience officer of Capital B. And together they are attempting to build, hopefully uh, their site will go live sometime this quarter in Q4. They are attempting to build a nonprofit local and national news organization reporting for black communities uh, because it's necessary. They have some really deep roots inside of some well-respected logos on the journalistic news side, if you will. Uh, And I'm rooting for them. I actually made a donation to the organization because I want to see them get off. I want to see them get off the ground and you can find them at capital B, the letter B for boy, capital B news.org. So quick mention. Yep. So NDEAM is here, National Disability Employment Awareness Month. And um, all I want to do is say, what is your organization doing to put real inclusion into your disability inclusion efforts? Not just this October, but every month. But if you're not having those conversations, now is a great time to start. And the National Center for Disability Entrepreneurship at the Viscardi Center is holding their second annual Founders with Disabilities Pitch Fest competition. I got to tell you how much I smiled when I found this, Jay. First of all, it's their second annual. So I missed the first one, had no idea about it. And I thought about my time out in Vegas at HR Tech and what we saw, what we didn't see. And one of the things that was highlighted was the lack of diversity. Well, if we don't have diversity, we absolutely struggle with inclusion. Worse, we struggle with the creation of technology that really is inclusive of all of us. And so I loved seeing this. It's gonna happen on November 19th, Friday, November 19th, 
uh you can get your seat you can get the uh piece we'll put this uh in the show notes but the link is pitchfest.discardycenter.org pitchfest.discardycenter.org but check the show notes and you'll see yeah so name drops this week first i'll say to lynn bailey who called out very nicely in her article about hr tech um about the lack of diversity and and the lack of um inclusion in that audience this year. Um, but I won't want to drop a special name drop to Dr. Jen Fromm, um, who is always just an amazing supporter of the pod and is always introducing us to new people, but also really supports Torn and I. So thank you so much, Doc. How about you, Tor? Yeah, I'm actually looking, uh, Change Leader. That's the name of her book, Change Leader by Dr. Jen Fromm, Change Leader. But my shout out this week are my kings. Both of them celebrated birthdays. One turned 17, the other one turned 20. Um, and it's actually emotional for me. Like I am so incredibly happy for, for them just to see how they have evolved. And like, when I say I'm proud of them, I, like I don't even want to take like 10 minutes to brag, but we'd be here for another 15 minutes. I love them. I absolutely love them. So happy birthday to both of them. And I'm going to make sure that they listen to this week's episode. Happy birthday, Kings. Thank you so much. I close reminding each and every one of you to be better humans, like share the pod with your digital tribe. Make sure you find your voice. Just be a better human. Like it really isn't that hard to not be the individuals picking on the elevator man inside of the organization. It's not really hard to not be the person who hops on social media and wants to know what's the big deal about a person walking down the the runway with their it's not it's not hard for you to not be that individual it's not hard to be that person in the community who says well you know why do we need to give you back a certain piece of it's not that hard to not be that person try hard to be somebody different try hard to be better human for now jay and i are ghost see ya How much do you understand the future of finance? I'm Jim Roos, a top 10 banking influencer and host of the podcast Banking Transformed, where we dive deeply into the rapidly evolving world of banking and financial technology. Join me as I interview industry experts, thought leaders, and innovators as they unravel the latest banking trends, disruptions, and game-changing technologies reshaping the world of finance. Redefine your understanding of the banking ecosystem. Subscribe now to Banking Transformed, available wherever you get your podcasts and now available on YouTube.